Responsa Radio, where you ask and we answer questions of Jewish law in modern times. I am Rabbi Avi Killip, here with Rabbi Ethan Tucker, Rosh Hashiva at Hadar, a center for higher Jewish learning based in New York City. So the question that we are going to look at today is actually very timely. So I feel the need to really clarify that we are recording today on January 6th of 2021. Um, Not surprisingly, we are connected through Zoom and not here in person together. This is a question, uh, as I said, a very timely question, but I think it's also really a question of this moment, but of this year. It's come up in so many different ways. So here's the question. I am a doctor, but I don't see patients in person right now. Because I am still affiliated with a hospital, I have been given priority to get the COVID vaccine. I don't feel certain that I should really be at the front of the line. Does Halakha offer guidance on the order of this vaccine rollout? And do I have any personal responsibility to act differently if I think the government is getting it wrong? It's a great question, an intense question. Um, I feel like I'm seeing versions of this question all over the place. Uh, you know, ethicist pages in uh, newspapers and magazines. Um, and before we even jump into the Jewish piece of it, you know, I think people want an answer. <laughs> they want guidance. They almost just want someone to tell them what to do. Um, and as is often the case here, as you know, well, maybe, I mean, I think we'll get to an answer here. Um, but I think we might even be able to uh, more effectively ensure that we get some vocabulary, and in particular, some sort of Torah-based and Jewish-based vocabulary. And the answer may not always be 100% simple, but um, that's a great one. All right, so let's, uh, let's jump into it. I, I think there's a, there's a bunch of different parts to this, so maybe we'll kind of take them one by one and, and see what we, what we think about them. Um, you know, let me start with, uh, with one piece and one principle that just feels uh, so important to acknowledge right at the beginning, which is the reason this question is difficult is because many of us instinctively walk around with a feeling that all human life is equal. Right? Every person is equal to every other. So the question actually comes from a place of panic, from a sort of moral stalemate of how could I possibly make this decision? Um, and that sits right at the heart of the Jewish sources on this topic as well. And so I'd like to come back at the end to actually affirming that some degree of paralysis around these questions may, in a counterintuitive way, be a reflection of having exactly the right values, <laughs> which is to say the inability to decide between lives and to make imperfect decisions may actually reflect what any number of sources, um, you know, kind of guide us to. And, and just to name two of them that are particularly central, uh, the Mishnah and Aholot, uh, which is dealing with a, a case that's very relevant for uh, questions around abortion and how to make those kinds of decisions, which is beyond what we're talking about here, talks about a case of a fetus that is threatening uh, a woman's life as she is giving birth. Um, and it talks about the absolute right to dismember the fetus in order to save, uh, save the birthing uh, mother. Um, but then it says, right, the second that the fetus emerges from the womb, 
אין נוגעין בו, you may not touch it, שאין דוחין נפש מפני נפש. At that point, you cannot allow one life to supersede another. Um, so there you just have as this basic principle, אין דוחין נפש מפני נפש, and there's something kind of very intense. You have this life that uh, has just begun, um, has contributed nothing to the world, Uh, is not even fully intelligent, conscious, but it's a human being, right, on its own. And then you've got an older life, a life that has given life, uh, memories, experiences, all of this. They're the same, right? That's at least the claim of that Mishnah. Yeah, I'll say one more thing that I think makes that Mishnah so heartbreaking and also feels so relevant to the COVID question now is that they're related. Right? It's like you're choosing my family or your family or my people versus your people. It's like even within your immediate family, you know, mother and child, you're saying who's more vulnerable or who's who gets this protection first? You know, if we have one mask, if we have one ventilator, if we have, you know, not enough of, of a vaccine, how do you make those decisions? You know, I think a lot of times when we think about parental child relationships in this regard, Um, you know, there's this sort of instinct and almost kind of cultural encouragement that like, oh, parents should be willing to give up their lives for their kids, right? Enable them to survive. And okay, you might get there. We may get to some version of this, but sort of as a principle, the Mishnah says, I'm at a stalemate, right? I got two lives in front of me. Certainly as at a remove, I don't feel that we can make some kind of systemic claim about it. And the, you know, the expression of that, which comes up in the Gemara and Sanhedrin, famous story where someone comes to Rabbah uh, and says, I've been threatened that I will lose my life unless I kill such and such person that I've been given as a target. And Rabbah says, sorry, you have to be prepared to die. Miyemar didama didach sumaktfe dilma dama dehahu gavra. Who says your blood is any redder than that person's blood? Maybe that person's blood is redder. And therefore, again, this language of stalemate, you're both the same. It doesn't matter if you're being threatened. There's no way to get around that. So we start with this sort of cornerstone to the whole discussion of there is no way to arbitrate. And then what I think is kind of fascinating about this is because people do ultimately have to make decisions, Can we then see where does that get complicated or chipped away at? Or do people try to find a way to nonetheless have some algorithm, right, for making what might be impossible decisions? Yeah, it is such a clear case of the need to actually make decisions and live in the world basically necessitates that you can't live up to the theory. So let's get into that morass a little bit and actually with some texts that are quite difficult and challenging texts that have actually have I would say personally have been upsetting to me for a long time um, even as some of the ways of thinking through this topic uh, and some one source in particular I want to I want to share has sort of helped me come to a different different understanding of them but so, so jumping into the Mishnah and Horayot so another Mishnah um, a kind of shocking line that says straight up Ha'ish kodem la'isha lahachayot. When you are saving two people and you are choosing between an, a, man, a man and a woman, the man takes precedence. Okay, but we'll come back to like, what does that even mean? What is even the basis? And we'll get to, you know, uh, 
what it, what it even means to think about applying that in any way and the reluctance around it. But the Mishnah goes on. That actually is not the end. It then talks about, oh yeah, a coin comes before a levy and a levy before a Yisrael. And it goes sort of down the pecking order of, you know, the internal Jewish caste system, as it were. Um, and then it adds this complicating factor. Yeah, but that's only when they all have the same level of learning. But actually, if you have someone of sort of the lowest social status, but who's a Talmid Chacham, who's a scholar, they take precedence over a high priest who's an ignoramus. So the Mishnah itself is sort of upsetting in ranking people, but it is also kind of internally confusing. Like what matters here? Is it social rank? Is it learning? What, what are we even measuring? And you see this, the, the Tosefta comes along and kind of fleshes this out further and says, Chacham kodem lemelech. A wise person, a sage, takes precedent over the king. Why? Because if a wise person, a sage, dies, they are irreplaceable. No one else has the Torah that they taught and will ever come back to replace that. Whereas a king, someone else can be the king, you have a line of succession, right? It's almost sort of think about, you know, a, a Nobel Prize winning scientist as opposed to the president. The president, someone who holds a job as opposed to someone who is, uh, you know, holding some expertise. So that suggests maybe there's some kind of irreplaceability. My favorite thing that sort of finishes out this set is then the Talmud Yerushalmi as it's thinking about Learning itself, in other words, even if we're privileging learning, says Hasodran Kodem Lapilpelan. If you have to choose between two learners, the person who basically memorizes everything and can put everything in order takes precedence over the person who is particularly legally clever and sharp. The implication seeming to be, particularly in an oral culture, the person who has the material, they're the book, right? They're going to enable everyone to learn, whereas this person is clever, but it's not clear that you couldn't regenerate that, right, with some effort. All right, so what, what, what do you say about this? This is all, like, so confusing. I, I totally hear you on the it's upsetting, right? It's like, we, it just feels like exact opposite to say no life, no life is better than any other life, except for, by the way, these lives are better than those lives. Um, as a prescriptive text, it feels really upsetting. As a descriptive text, I feel like, well, yeah, that's pretty much how we operate. I'm under no pretense that we as a society actually act like all lives are equal. We do value the life of the king and, and the life of the higher classes. And, you know, it's like there, we certainly are not living up to in any society that I have known the idea that all lives are equal. Um, so although it feels shocking and upsetting as a, as a direction, it also feels uh, familiar, I guess I would say, um, to say, well, yeah, people do prioritize men over women. People do prioritize priests over, uh, you know, over the regular people. So, so I don't know what to make of that. It makes me both more calm about this text and more angry because I say, well, this is where it all comes from. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. And, you know, the, the difficulty here, as you pointed out, is also even just in terms of trying to understand it before we even get to endorsing and applying, 
what do we make of um, the same work, the Mishnah, right? Now, it's not like two competing uh, canons, right? The same Mishnah is codifying endochi nefesh mipnei nefesh in a case where it's about, um, you know, people of different ages and babies, adults, etc. And on the other hand, seems to be laying this out. So there's a passage from the Rambam in his commentary on this Mishnah um, that I found helpful for we can argue, is it the plain sense of the Mishnah or is it the Rambam's, you know, attempt to appropriate it and redirect it? Um, but at least a way of sort of thinking about what's happening here. Um, the Rambam in commenting on this Mishnah and in particular on this notion that the sage takes precedence over the king says, Eino ela be'emunah this only has a basis in some belief, some conviction, I might even say some assessment, that the sage is ultimately going to do more for the nation than the king. Meaning, the Rambam here is trying to sort of get us to see, well, yeah, you might have a stalemate in terms of the sort of ontological worth of the two people, and that stalemate might lead you to a complete meltdown, you know, in terms of what do I do? But what it might actually do is sort of clear the way for making um, a slightly uncomfortable, but maybe also logical kind of utilitarian calculus of, but if what I'm now looking out for is not who's the more worthy individual, but I'm trying to do what's best for the society as a collective, what is going to be the right move here? So the Rambam is trying to take this away, I think, from ontological worth. It's not that the sage is more morally deserving than the king, but this text, that text in the Yerushalmi or the Tosefta, apparently feels that society as a whole will be better off for making that decision. Now, just to jump categories for a minute, this is exactly what's going on with vaccinating health workers before people who are over 80. Okay, explain that. <laughs> well, I don't think, though it would be interesting, I don't think anyone is basing the decision to give priority to health workers in terms of receiving the vaccine on the notion that they are morally outstanding people for being health workers and for being first responders, that it's like a reward. You know, you were so great these past five yeah, months. Yeah, I don't we'll know. I feel vaccine. like I have heard some of that, but maybe that's how people have absorbed the information as opposed to how they how it actually originated as a decision. Um, I do feel like there's a sense of like they sacrificed themselves to get to this point you know, and therefore they get first dibs or something. So I think as the legal requirements go, I think for, and this goes to the question, just to return to it for a minute, right? The formal question here was I'm still affiliated with a, with a hospital, right? Or I'm still connected, even though I haven't seen patients. I think that data point is critical for the question because um, I don't think if you worked in emergency rooms for the past four months, but then completely resigned cut ties have no you know connections to a healthcare institution that you have any right to claim a vaccine right even though by the moral dessert argument you certainly deserve it 
So I think in that sense, society is doing some version of what the Rambam is saying here, which is, no, 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 we need the healthcare workers to be vaccinated because we need them both physically and psychologically to be able to go into the emergency rooms and ICUs with confidence and treat as many people as possible. Yeah, so right? there's a level of uh, usefulness um, as opposed I think you're saying as opposed to worth, although I'm still it still sticks for me a little bit to feel like, you know, there there your worth of your life is equal regardless of who you are and what you do. And then this other Mishnah, even if the Mishnah is saying, you know, how useful you are is how we decide who to save. Um, I guess even though the lives are of equal worth is is maybe what you're saying to try to write or Rambam is saying perhaps to try to reconcile those two. Um, but I do actually find it helpful in thinking about how did we get to this decision about healthcare workers? Um, you know, when we said, was this a question of, well, who do we save first? Who's, whose lives matter most? Um, you know, that maybe that would have been, you know, we, we vaccinate politicians first or we vaccinate teachers first or we vaccinate um, healthcare workers. That that's maybe how we got to healthcare workers was who's, who do we need most if we're going to get through the next stage of COVID? We need the healthcare workers. Um, and that's and that's where these people come come first in line. Yeah, I mean, look, I do think you are right that as much as I think the Rambam and I think it's a plausible read of that Mishnah is saying there are two separate categories here. There's sort of the utility category and there's the moral, you know, ontological worth category. I think you're right that even if theoretically we think of those as separate, um, they blur. <laughs> one into the other, right? In other words, it's hard not to see an affirmation of someone's greater worth in allocating to them a scarce social resource, um, you know, that is prized and needed by many. This is where maybe we get back to the importance of vocabulary and discourse and these kinds of discussions. Um, even if those lines blur, can we sort of continue to bear the standard of the Mishnah and Ahalot, nefesh nefesh, as a sort of non-negotiable point of human equality, even as we make some of these difficult but perhaps necessary choices? I don't see this in this text, but I just feel the need to say it because we moved into the conversation of the real world. Um, the thing that the piece that I don't see in this Mishnah is the question of vulnerability in terms of the different populations. Um, that one of the questions, one of the ways we could have done this vaccine rollout was let's vaccinate the most vulnerable first. Um, and I do think at some stage we plan to get to that, right? Uh, people in Israel, certainly, they've already gotten to that stage of if you're over a certain age, if you're over a certain weight, if you have a s asthma, um, you know, that, that it's your your risk factors, actually, your vulnerability that push you to the front of that line. Um, whereas right now in America, we haven't hit that yet. And, and I'm not sure I see that in, in either of the Mishnayot that you brought. Yeah, we're going to get, I want to get to that actually in this discussion as well, because that, that is a different frame. Uh, which is sort of important. Um, just to just to close the the parenthesis on on this bit, I, I think it's then very interesting. Like, okay, you have this theoretical discussion of the Mishnah and Horayot, um, and oh, it lists out these you know categories and priorities and what are they about. Um, when you actually look into kind of the history of application of it, um, you find it is extremely thin. 
<laughs> um, that is to say, it's not actually at all clear that anyone really ever applied these distinctions. Uh, Rav Moshe Feinstein has a throwaway line when he's trying to sort of justify treating all patients that come into the hospital exactly the same. He's like, yeah, yeah, there's that Mishnah and Horayot, but it's very hard to actually apply that um, in any way without doing a massive investigation about who is actually of what value to society. Um, and so you, you don't have time for that, and we don't really do that. Um, and uh, Rav Herschel Schachter, who has written a lot about these issues recently at Yeshiva University, actually quite strikingly, as someone who is, uh, who is no feminist and is no, uh, no fan of reevaluating uh, kind of gender and how it correlates to obligation and mitzvot in ways, you know, we take for granted in, in our conversations. Even he goes to that line in the Mishnah in Horayot that was like, oh, yeah, a man takes precedence over a woman. He's like, I don't know. I guess that was based on something of the Mishnah assumes men have more religious obligations than women. And that will somehow be more critical to like the health of the people. He's like, yeah, but now, you know, even in my community, women learn lots of Torah and do lots of things. There's no way to use that as a basis of calculating anything anymore. And he just throws it out, right? Not, not as sort of a formal precedent, but he, he throws out the notion, but in some ways, in, in keeping with the spirit of what the Rambam says the Mishnah is about, the Mishnah is trying to make impossible decisions among equals vis-a-vis -a, -vis a secondary characteristic to the extent we no longer have any clarity on that secondary characteristic. Um, that Mishnah is just not helpful anymore as a guideline. So again, that's where I think we could have a debate. Do we think that's the plain sense of the Mishnah? Is that some degree of apologetics? But it does give a helpful sense for just in terms of where this conversation has gone in terms of psak halacha, practical halacha. Actually, the Mishnah in Horayot has not been an outsized uh, player in this discussion. It's so interesting because it feels so clear. You know, it's like, oh, does Judaism, you know, does Halakha have anything to say about this? Well, yeah, I have a Mishnah exactly about this. Um, that when we then go to apply it, uh, you know, that we would just say doesn't work. It just doesn't work. Yeah, and I think the only way we can understand that is it's the sort of on our right shoulder Mishnah Aholot. What are you choosing between people, <laughs> right? You, you can't do that. And yet we have to choose between people sometimes. So what are some of the other things? So maybe let's talk about what you just raised, um, which is the question of sort of, um, you know, possible death, definite death, high risk, low risk, this notion of can we sort of distinguish between how people will be affected by the situation? Um, in other words, it's not a question of where do they rank, um, but basically are some people more vulnerable than others, right, in a given scenario. So this is another thing that's kind of fascinating. Um, this doesn't really come up in Chazal, in the core ancient sources. That playing of sort of uh, doubtful as opposed to definite risk um, just doesn't come up as a robust part of the discussion, even though it's so sort of intellectually and maybe even morally obvious uh, sort of a question or a factor to raise. Um, 
and you tend to get it like only relatively late, like just to sort of throw out a couple things. So, you know, the Sefer Hasidim, which is in 12th, 13th century Germany. So he says, if you have a terminally ill person and a healthy person, and you're not sure if you can save both of them, in this case through a violation of Shabbat, but we can extend it sort of more broadly, Yatzil Hachai Habari, you definitely save the fully living, healthy person with sort of a longer, uh, you know, a, a, a longer lease on life, as it were. Mm, um, that feels yeah, the sort of the opposite that, of my instinct. That almost feels like uh, give the, you know, give all the college students and kids the vaccine as opposed to the people more likely to suffer. Okay, so you've actually asked the exact question about this Sefer Hasidim. The Sefer Hasidim is distinguishing between a terminally ill person and a healthy person. So there's actually two ways to read that. One is we give it to the person who is just more robust, Right. That is to say, or we help save the person who is just more likely basically to recover. Um, and that would be true. You would start evaluating like maybe does this person have 15 years to live? Does this person have 30 years to live? That's the broad way of reading the Sefer Hasidim as wading into that territory. I think the way the Sefer Hasidim has generally been read is the opposite way, which is the only reason that you can decide between these two people is because one of them is terminally ill. The second, they don't have a definite diagnosis of basically just waiting to die, then this is unhelpful, right? But, but it shows you the sort of vagueness, right, in some of the, in some of the terminology. So the, the terminal illness piece is, is one element. Um, the primigadim, the work of Rav Yosef Teomim, uh, in the 18th century on the Shulchan Aruch, um, also talking in the context of Shabbat, um, he says, if one person is clearly in danger and the other person is only possibly in danger and you can only heal one of them, then you treat the person who is surely in danger. Right, so assume if you read that somehow in concert with the Sefer Hasidim, you would go to the second reading, right? Which is basically the person who's more vulnerable gets the treatment provided it's not already, you know, certain that they're going to die, right? That sort of flips the switch. So on some level, okay, that, that provides some context here uh, for another, another axis. Um, but it doesn't give much more than that, right? I think to go from there to detailed guidelines um, of a Department of Health of what is considered a higher risk category uh, than another, I'm not sure. I'm not sure we can uh, write the algorithm that's going to spit that out from Jewish sources. Certainly, Jewish sources that were not running a hospital system and a state. Uh, and all of the things that bring this issue to scale. And in that sense, I think you look at any reasonable set of guidelines that are grappling one way or another with vulnerability, social utility, um, while making it sort of clear and fair in a way that doesn't undermine fundamental human equality, you're probably within the range of what you know, Jewish sources would say, well, that's that's how you should be thinking about it. I think it, it's maybe a good example of, of uh, something I have definitely learned from you throughout the years of being your student is um, that halacha is not something you follow. It's something you apply. 
um, that it's never, it's almost never as simple as like, well, Halakha just told me what to do and I can just do it. Um, it's like, well, what's the situation and what are all the factors and how do I do my best to apply what I'm inheriting from Halakha to a real situation that is happening around me? Um, and that application is going to look different in depending on the situation. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And the situations are so challenging when they feel like, you know, they present so many variables at the same time. Right. And when by definition, so much is at stake. Right. Like the feeling again that you're making the wrong decision here doesn't feel like, all right, maybe I'll get it better next time. Right? It's like I may have made an infinitely wrong decision. I guess, you know, part of what I was trying to say at the beginning was Sometimes I think there needs to be a little bit of a recalibration. It's not that there can't be wrong decisions here. But on some level, when you claim that all human life is of infinite value and equal one to the other, um, almost every decision is a coin toss in some way, right? Almost every decision we're making about to whom to allocate resources has some worth behind it. If I put it most simply, Every person who gets the vaccine, that is a good thing. Yeah. Uh, People should defraud. Everyone who gets it needed it. Everyone who gets it needed it, right? And that's actually the fundamental, kind of the fundamental important work. Yeah, you know, I think that's helpful. Maybe like a major takeaway here of what does Halakha have to say about the rollout is it needs to be comprehensive, it needs to be quick, it needs to be efficient, Um, that actually the question of exactly the order is actually less important than than the speed and the attention and the priority given to vaccination. Um, Just overall, we should prioritize vaccination as opposed to the the secondary question of who exactly should be prioritized um, once we get down to the individual level or even the category level. Um, I'm curious if you have any thoughts uh, on the last line of this question, which was, do I have any personal responsibility to act differently if I think the government is getting it wrong? Um, if there's an individual who who is given an opportunity to get the vaccine and it sounds like they want to get it, but they just they don't understand why they were prioritized first, or maybe they, they further than that, maybe they actually think it's wrong that they were prioritized first. Um, do they have any obligation to behave differently, or is the sort of obligation at, a, at the level of the rollout and not at the level of the individual receiving the vaccine? Yeah, so I'll say kind of basic practical answer, and then one source that I think is a kind of extreme source, but like interesting and, and helpful, uh, I hope, for thinking about this. Um, my basic answer to this person is no, you should not feel guilty uh, or like you're doing something inappropriate by getting the vaccine. It sounds like all protocols are being followed here. You are actually entitled to it by the way government guidelines have been laid out. You haven't defrauded or deceived uh, anyone. And in that sense, harking back to the Ein Dochi Nefesh Mipnei Nefesh orientation, like y- your life is worth as much as anyone else's uh, for getting this vaccine. Um, And in that sense, I don't think anything is being done wrong 
um, particularly in a context where, though I know, you know, many of us have been frustrated by what's the pace of the rollout and, um, you know, how well is it and effectively is the vaccination being administered. Um, th there's not really a sense that we are actually going to run out. Right. That is to say, it's a longer period of time. How much will people have to distance? That could change. Right. But my sense right now is not that by this person getting the vaccine, there will be someone else who actually doesn't get it. It's more they're getting it four months earlier, five months earlier. So in all of the with all of those contexts, um, I don't think there's there's any issue or any problem with getting it. Um, and you should get it if you're entitled to it. And then to the extent that gives you some added ability and bandwidth to do things in the world that, you know, contribute to society, you can take that as your charge. Right. Let's let me retroactively make it make sense <laughs> that I was one of the people who did this. I, I will offer, though, you know, I, I think in, I don't think it's a direct question, but a, a sort of version of this question might be. I'm thinking of refusing my dose of the vaccine. Am I permitted to do that? Right. In other words, is it a, am I allowed to potentially increase my own risk uh, in terms of uh, of that decision? So, again, it's a little different if you actually are giving up ever getting the vaccine than delaying it. Right. That plays in the other direction. It's hard to imagine that, like, deferring your getting of the vaccine uh, for a couple months, right, would be would be forbidden, right, even under the mandate to guard your own life. But I'll share you just one text that's kind of extreme. The the Radbaz, Rav David ben Zimra, um, who's in Egypt in the 16th century, and he gets a crazy question where someone basically says to him, um, if I can save someone else's life by amputating my arm, Jeez. Do I have the obligation to do that? Mm -hmm. And the premise of the question is, well, at the end of the day, you're going to live. He has that question um, because he doesn't know about kidney donation already. So he, he can only imagine limbs that actually he can see. He definitely doesn't have kidney donation. And also he seems to be dealing with a kind of violent, corrupt, almost, I don't know if it's, you know, a terrorist type force. There's there's some kind of government agent of violence that seems like they may be involved and basically be like, you know, I'll, I'll chop off your hand, you know, whatever. Uh, but but it's extendable, right? Because the core question is, well, thought about from a moral philosophy perspective, isn't it obvious that your arm is worth less than someone else's life? And so... If you take seriously the notion that human life is sort of the thing of ultimate worth, how can you justify keeping your arm? And the Radbaz gives two answers to this. Answer number one is you don't have to give up your arm. Um, and on some level, he almost melts down in the in the chuva in the responsum and says, uh, you know, first of all, you don't have to give up your arm because maybe it would be a danger to your life, you know, to go through the amputation. But that's a dodge, right? He ends up saying the Torah is not supposed to be a sort of sadistic torture device. Um, it's supposed to be a pleasant path that you can walk. It's just completely against all reason 
um, and human intuition that a person is obligated to subject themselves to that kind of ordeal in order to save someone's life, even though it's not going to directly affect their life. That's part one of the answer. Part two of the tshuva is, but if you want to give up your arm, you're allowed. <laughs> in other words, the Radbaz is basically saying, I can't imagine how we could compel someone to put themselves through that level of risk, pain, etc., even if it was a guarantee that they wouldn't die, um, even in order to save someone else's life. But I'm not willing to take off the table that someone might make that decision for themselves. This is obviously way more than, you know, giving up a kidney. This is losing some, you know, core functionality in your body. Um, and so what I take from that is, you know, that's that's a quite extreme case. But I think that it is permissible to decide to take certain concrete risks to your own life in order to guarantee that you will save someone else's life. This is a much lower level of that. If someone wanted to forego a vaccine because they were concerned there was going to be a shortage in order to give it to someone else. But I would say, yes, as a general matter, when we're talking about are you obligated, I don't think this person's under any religious or for that matter, ethical obligation to turn down the vaccine. The question is, would we view it as in any way admirable if they decided to? And that's where I think the Radbaz opens the possibility. You can be open to saying that a certain action is admirable without necessarily giving it the normative force of expectation. You know, it's a real, um, it's a real pushback for me, <laughs> what you're saying, because I, you know, I hear you saying really at the end of the day, there's not really a wrong way. We all have to get vaccinated. Um, and I feel like, I don't know, I am actually one of those people who has been up at, kept up at night feeling like the way that this rollout is happening is is not the right way, um, that we're not making the right moral decisions about who we're vaccinating first. Um, and, you know, the, the situation described here in this question of, I'm not actually seeing patients in person. I happen to be affiliated with the hospital or, or I or not happen to. I am a doctor, um, but I'm not in the line of duty that, you know, when I hear about those vaccines, I do feel like actually the, the grocery worker, um, you know, is maybe more more entitled to that vaccine in terms of, um, you know, what do we, even the utility argument. Um, so it's, it is a pushback okay. for me actually to have to stop and say, you know what, everybody is entitled to it. Um, and, and it may not be the ideal way, but, but it may not be the wrong way. And then I guess the speed matters a lot. You're sort of saying if it's four months or five months, you know, if, we, if the United States goes at the rate it's going now, um, we won't vaccinate the entire population in 10 years. So unless we pick it up, pick up the pace a lot, um, it's, it, is, it, is, it feels like a question of are we getting it at all, even if maybe, you know, the four-year-olds don't need it immediately. <laughs> Yeah. And look, in New York State, they tried to do, uh, you know, a combination of this where phase one was basically the nursing home residents uh, combined with a very, I think, controlled population of healthcare professionals. And then they expanded to the broader set of healthcare professionals. And then they're going to go to the people over 75. Um, 
And that's an effort to sort of keep both of those categories alive. You know, the vulnerability, the sense of it's closer to certain that you might die from this, along with some of the utility considerations. Who do we really need kind of at peak health? And look, what's complicated about this specific question is when you get to a certain scale of responsibility and decision making, there is no question that you are uh, going to have people who fall into categories who are peripheral to those categories, right? In other words, there's not a good bureaucratic way to say we're going to have all the healthcare workers, but only the ones that are active and now seeing patients because the databases you're going to go to are the hospitals and the doctor's offices, and they're going to have lists of people, and there's just going to be people on those lists, right? And it's not going to be a good use of anyone's time to sort of sift through to find the one out of 147 people on the list who's less active. Does that create some inequity or some, you know, sort of uh, some noise in the signal that you're trying to get out there? Yeah, I think that I think that's right. Um, but that's where, yeah, I guess what I'm what I'm pushing back or at least elevating is is a real principle that ought to have teeth. And it, I think when it has teeth, it has to have those teeth in two directions, right? One is we never actively prefer one person over another because of a claim of greater uh, or lesser ontological worth. But it also means we can't necessarily view any given person's action to save their life as illegitimate <laughs> uh, because their life itself is sort of as actively worth something as anyone else's. Um, but it's tough. It, it's very tough. And I really like what you said, um, which is that the overarching halachic priority here is how do we have a society that invests in scale and speed at getting everyone covered? Because the way you really manifest the value of Ein Dochi Nefesh Mipnei Nefesh is it's completely unacceptable that we would leave anyone out in the cold. Right, right. You know, this is such a it's such a complicated question and such a hard question. And I actually, I maybe wish I would have started with this, but I want to close us out um, just with acknowledging how deeply personal and emotional this question is. Maybe more so than any other question that we've ever discussed on Response Radio. You know, we've all spent the last year just under the worst conditions that we could imagine. Um, and we're all so eager to get this vaccine. Um, and whether people are eager to get it for themselves or they're eager to get it for their family members, you know, I have one friend who is a doctor who said, um, you know, in a second, if she could have given her vaccine dosage to her mother, she would have done that. Um, even though she's the one going into the hospital every day, she felt that she was protected enough with her PPE. And it's, you know, her mother who hasn't left the house in, in months and months that she would give it to. Um, there's just so many different ways um, that, that all the texts and all the ideas and all the arguments um, are so personal for people. Um, so I want to say some combination of, of thank you for listening and also, you know, I don't know, apology if any of these, the texts or our conversation is, is, uh, is missing any perspectives or point of view. Um, you know, I'll be, I, I have no doubt that we'll be having this conversation probably nonstop for the next year. So I hope some of this language and some of these texts will be useful to people. 
Yeah, and you know, I'll add one last thought on this, going back to the question of how much of an answer we can give. I think sometimes uh, halakha can very helpfully give us direct answers of here's what you should do. Um, sometimes all it can do, and maybe all it should do, is clarify what the wrong answers are and create kind of a range that is sort of the, the field in which we're playing and trying to find our way towards justice, goodness, religious faithfulness, etc. Um, and just to name what I think has been implicit here, but we didn't say, there are undeniably wrong answers to this question, such as auctioning off vaccines to the highest bidder right or deciding you're going to send vaccines to precincts who voted for you um, or anything else that takes us away from a fundamental frame of human equality and even okay some of the tough but necessary kind of utilitarian decisions of what's going to ultimately best be best for the health of the entire society um, there are a lot of ways to get this wrong um, I'm I'm grateful that at least right now uh, in the society we're living in where there's a lot that's not being done well and a lot that's being done wrong. Um, there is at least in most quarters that I've seen um, an effort to be somewhere in that zone of doing right by the most people for the most benefit while treating everyone reasonably equally. But, but the structural and systemic uh, elements that that get in the way of that have to be fought and pushed back on uh, if we want to stand for these values. Yeah, that's really, that's really helpful to remember. Um, thanks so much. Responsa Radio is a project of the Hadar Institute in Jewish Public Media. Have a halachic question you'd like answered on the show? Email us at halacha at hadar.org. That's H-A-L-A-K-H-A-H at hadar.org. Thank you to Noah Gendler for editing this episode. Right, yeah.